Living kidney transplantation is the best treatment option for most people with renal failure, and globally each year more than 30,000 people become living kidney donors. This week's clinical update in the BMJ explains why it's important for non-specialists to know about living donation and how to support people who express an interest in this. I'm joined on the phone by two authors of the review, Ashlyn Courtney, a consultant nephrologist from Belfast City Hospital, and Pippa Bailey, a clinical lecturer in renal medicine at the University of Bristol. Ashling and Pippa, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Pleasure. Firstly, I think it's important to put this into context and to know a bit about how often is a GP or a non-specialist likely to come across someone who, who either has been or wants to be a living donor. Pippa, perhaps you could answer that question. Well, um, globally, it's estimated that approximately 30,000 individuals um, become living kidney donors each year. In the UK, that figure is uh, approximately 1,000. And these are individuals who are relatively healthy um, and therefore the total number of living kidney donors in the UK um, is uh, increasing, accumulating. And so it is increasingly likely that um, GPs and non-renal specialists will encounter uh, living kidney donors in their practice, whether that's um, being involved in part of the assessment process or whether that's being involved in post-donation care. Now, it's also worth saying that there will have been a number of other um, individuals who, who didn't actually progress to actual donation. A transplant candidate may have a number of friends and family come forward for um, donor evaluation and only one of them will progress. Um, and so, as well as these actual living kidney donors, there will also be a lot of other people who begin at least some of the process. And so it's increasingly likely that um, GPs will encounter actual donors and potential donors in their clinical careers. Ashling, why do we think that non-specialists need to know about this? What can they do to sort of facilitate the process when someone expresses an interest in donating? So there are two main aspects um, to the involvement of non-specialists. So the first would be when people are contemplating. Sometimes their own general practitioner would be the first person that they will approach if they're thinking of donating kidney to ask for their advice um, and their guidance on that. Secondly, when someone has made that initial step and is being assessed as a kidney donor, quite often the transplant team will want some further help from the general practitioner, either in terms of the person's past medical history or some help perhaps in doing, for example, a 24-hour blood pressure monitor to ensure the blood pressure is good. So those, that would be one aspect in terms of facilitating and enabling people to become living donors. And then the second aspect would be once someone has needed and Pippet's quite right in terms of the prevalence of people who have donated a kidney will continually be on the increase. So in the last, each of the last seven years in the UK, a thousand people have donated. So that is 7,000 people more than there were a few years ago. And we expect that these people will live for a very, very long time. So clearly there's going to be a cumulative increase in terms of the number of people who've donated who will attend their own general practitioner or other non-specialists for other reasons. And um, one of the issues that is really keenly felt by people who have donated is when their kidney function is checked after donation. Then quite often non-specialists will think, oh my, this person has got chronic kidney disease. And for a donor to be told that, it engenders a huge amount of anxiety, as you can imagine, that they're told they've got chronic kidney disease. The truth is that they have 
not chronic kidney disease, but they have less kidney. They've lost nephron mass, but they don't have a chronic kidney disease as such. And that's a very important distinction um, for the for the donors and for specialists to realise this person's got a healthy kidney, they just have got less kidney. So in terms of ongoing follow-up and long-term outcomes, that's an important distinction for non-specialists to have so that they, they don't become overtly anxious about it and that the person who's donated uh, isn't uh, left in a state of feeling something badly's gone badly wrong here. Yeah, and it sounds like it's really an issue for communication as well and making sure that you know how to communicate those results in the context of, of what's happened. If we think about who can and can't donate, what are the rules and regulations around that? I think it's important for people to realise that you don't have to be perfect to be a living kidney donor. I think in times past, that was probably the assumption that you had to be you know, very fit and very active and young and absolutely nothing wrong with you. But the, the truth is that you, you don't have to be perfect so long as we can ensure that the short-term risks associated with having the operation and the anaesthetic are acceptably low. And then the long-term risks in terms of living with one kidney are acceptably low. There are very few other things, as Pippa said, that are absolute contraindications to, to donating. We'll talk a bit more about those short and long-term risks in a minute. But I'm also very interested in that in the review, you talk about how it used to be the case that people would need to be matched in terms of blood group and HLA. And that isn't, that isn't any longer the case. Is that right? So it is preferable if someone is a compatible blood group and a good tissue match. So that tends to be a more straightforward um, operation. However, in in some, but not every case, it is possible to overcome the barrier of antibodies to both blood group and antibodies to tissue type or HLA. Um, it requires additional treatment for the person who's getting the kidney. So with the additional treatment, there are some additional risks. But in not every case, but in some cases, it's, it's certainly feasible to uh, transplant a, a kidney across those barriers which we've previously thought were insurmountable. Um, so we would tend to think about doing that type of a transplant when the alternative is that the person stays on dialysis for a prolonged period of time because dialysis itself carries substantial risks to both short and long-term health. And in certain situations, actually the risk benefit is in favour of proceeding with a slightly higher risk transplant rather than remaining on dialysis. It's also important to mention that in addition to desensitisation and um, the possibility of transplantation across um, an immunological barrier. In many countries, including in the UK, donors and recipients who are incompatible or are poorly matched also have the option of entering um, kidney sharing schemes. Now, donor and recipient pairs enter these schemes and then the donors are essentially swapped or rearranged um, so that um, compatible transplants um, are achieved. When there are just two pairs involved in that swap, that's typically called paired donation. But when there are more than two pairs involved, that's typically called pooled donation. Um, and there are diagrams in the um, article which, which illustrate that um, quite well. Yeah, so sort of widening the opportunities that are available. Mm, yeah. If we think about straightforward matches where you know immunosuppression isn't an issue, can you talk a bit about the short and long-term risks for the donor? You do touch on this in the review. I think that's quite important for our non-specialists to be aware of. Ashling, what, what are your um, thoughts on that? 
So the short-term risks are really the risks associated with having an operation, which usually are very low. Um, and then the risks associated specifically with taking a kidney out, which again are very uncommon that there's a serious complication. But if you do enough of these operations, as with anything else, there's always a chance of injury to your blood vessel or to the bowel, for example. But in general, I guess because these people that come into living donation have been thoroughly assessed, it's not an emergency surgery. In general, there's a very, very good outcome um, in terms of the short-term risks. Um, in terms of the longer-term risks, um, the main thing is really uh, living with one kidney. And are there any features about that particular individual that will mean their kidney is likely to fail? So the the goal of assessment is to ensure as far as possible that one kidney would provide the donor with adequate function for the remainder of their lifetime. So will somebody get to, typically, we think of typically get to 80 or over 80 with adequate kidney function? They'll not necessarily have perfect kidney function, but will they have adequate function for that period of time? And the one of the commonest concerns that I have when I assess people nowadays is people that are overweight or people that are obese. So we know that that is associated with hypertension. Hypertension is bad for your kidneys in the long term. People who are overweight or obese are more likely to develop diabetes. We know that diabetes is one of the commonest reasons for kidneys to fail. Um, so because of our lifestyle and, and how we live uh, in the West, that is one of the biggest issues for people who are overweight and people who are obese. If someone's kidney function on assessment initially is good, and they have a moderate, healthy lifestyle, you would expect the vast majority will have adequate function with one kidney. Clearly, the longer you have to live with one kidney, um, the more important it is that you you're, have a very healthy lifestyle in the long term and your kidney function is very good in the long term. And actually, within the UK, the new guidelines that are uh, forthcoming in terms of lung donor expect that people who are in their 20s and want to donate, they have to have extremely good kidney function um, to go forward as a donor. As people get older, they have less time that they need to live with one kidney, and a slightly lower level of kidney function to start with is more acceptable. So it's a, a key question of making sure they've got two good kidneys to start off with, that they are prepared and committed to a moderate healthy lifestyle in the longer term. Um, and for the vast majority, if they adhere to that advice, uh, they will be able to function with one kidney for a long time. The risks that uh, donors themselves are prepared to take is often much greater than the risks that we as medical professionals allow them to take. Um, so, for example, if my sister um, needed a kidney transplant and you told me that I would live for five years less by giving her a kidney, it wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate in terms of donating to her. But we as medical professionals worry about whether the EGFR is going to be 30 or 35 when the person's 80. And quite often for their loved one, um, someone is prepared to take a much higher risk than we as a medical profession actually allow them, uh, as it were, to take. Okay. When someone's made the decision to become a donor and they've been counselled and they've they've had all the information about short and long-term risks, what does it mean in terms of the workup and the burden of investigations before they actually get to the point of donating? Pippa, what's the process like? Um, so the process varies Um it, in different countries um, and and within countries. So um, uh, different uh, renal centres and transplant centres will have different um, pathways through which the donor will progress um, before they're allowed to donate. Um, 
typically, um, after there's been information provided to the donor, they've made a decision about whether they want to go forward, um, most centres will then progress with um, a simple health questionnaire um, and going through sort of the basic medical history of, of this potential donor, sometimes with information from um, uh, GPs, um, and then with simple blood tests, um, initially with um, the donor's blood group um, and simple blood test assessing kidney function, um, liver function, full blood count, etc. Um, then there's normally a, a step forward onto a full um, tissue typing um, of the donor and their intended recipient, um, and then further um, assessment by clinicians, a, a nephrologist, and um, investigations associated with um, that, so imaging of the, of the kidneys, um, sometimes assessment of how much function is contributed by each kidney to um, someone's overall renal function, um, often specialty um, assessments, so other non-renal specialists are called on to um, give their opinion, for example, cardiac assessment for um, suitability for, for donor surgery, um, possibly respiratory input. Um, and then there's an assessment from a, a transplant surgeon um, and um, a discussion at a transplant multidisciplinary team about um, progressing with that um, donor um, for donation. Now, in most centres in the UK, that um, process happens over um, a period of uh, weeks to months. Um, but some centres in the UK are now um, doing most of those investigations in one or two days um, so that um, a donor has uh, an answer quite quickly as to whether they are going to be suitable for donation or not. Um, and uh, in our review, we have a, a, an excellent um, contribution from um, a donor who's been through that one-day process and her husband who went through a, a longer assessment process and really the feedback from donors is that, that the shorter the assessment process, um, the better in terms of impact on their life and, and progressing with, with something they wish to do. I urge people to read that account. I think it's very mm. um, telling, you know, the family have been Fantastic. through both both sides, the, mm. the very quick and rapid process versus the sort of much more prolonged and, and the mm. issues of that because I found found that very powerful um mm. if we think now to beyond the the you know the donation itself gps as you say will probably have patients on their list who who will have donated um mm. and in the longer term it would be really helpful if you could sort of explain what's required in terms of monitoring and and critically as well ashling when when to worry um, and when to reassure because i think as you said there's a potential there for anxiety to be projected onto the patient and sometimes probably a little bit unnecessarily so the two things that um are are key in this firstly um the person who's donated, their creatinine will be higher after donation than it was before, and their EGFR will be lower after donation than it was before. So that is inevitable. So they are now have one kidney, whereas before they had two. So inevitably, their creatinine will be higher, and their EGFR will be lower, and we know that, and we accept that. The second key thing is that there is always a degree of fluctuation with all of us, one kidney or two, in terms of our creatinine and EGFR measurements. So that variability depends on the lab, on what the person's eaten, um, on their volume status. So if it's a very hot day and they've had more insensible loss of sweating, they'll have a higher creatinine. So anything really from 10 to 15% on either side of their true creatinine is still within that normal variation. So I recently had a lady who donated this time last year 
her creatinine was 117, went up to 122, and co that caused a huge anxiety. But actually, that's quite within normal variation. And when it was rechecked, it was 104. So there, a, there will be a higher creatinine and a lower EGFR after nation. That's to be expected. And there will be that degree of normal variation that is also within the normal parameters. So the in general, we um, follow up everyone who's donated the kidney once a year, and we ask for their kidney blood tests, their urine to assess for protein, and their blood pressure. And we don't expect there to be um, any problems necessarily in between uh, in terms of that. Of course, there's always a chance that someone who has one kidney will develop some problem with that kidney, the same as they would have done had they have two. But we would say that actually it's just the normal um, the, the normal times when you'd be anxious for someone with two kidneys is exactly the same when you should be anxious with someone with one. So if it's a progressive rise in creatinine or a progressive increase in their protein excretion or they develop uh, hematuria, for example, those are the situations where actually you would be anxious for anyone, and that's simply when to refer on as well. The last thing I'd say is that certainly uh, most, if not all, living donor transplant teams are very committed in the long term to their donors also. So we would be, in general, very happy to field any questions or queries about someone's renal function. Um, so quite often simply reassurance and say, look, this is what your creatinine has been like over the last 10 years. There's a little bit of fluctuation, but it actually is entirely steady. And that often gives reassurance both for the non-specialist who's, who's anxious on behalf of their patient and the patient themselves. So um, if in any doubt, it's worth speaking to a living donor transplant team. Um, and believe believe you, we're, we're similarly anxious. If there is a problem with one of our donors, we'll be very anxious about it. So actually, we'll be more than happy to take on looking at that donor if there's any suggestion that there's a problem with their remaining kidney. Great. And just mm -hmm. finally, are there any restrictions placed on people who've donated a kidney? Do you give them any sort of specific advice long term? I mean, you mentioned general lifestyle, but do you restrict sort of any any foods or any medications or is there anything specific that doctors should be aware of? Pippa? No, so not um, beyond um, advice that we should probably all adhere to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So simply staying as healthy as possible. So, um, you know, uh, regular exercise, avoiding smoking, um, a good diet. But no, there's nothing specific um, to people who uh, have donated a kidney. Um, obviously, if their um, renal function declines or if they um, are at the point where um, their GFR um, might affect the dose of certain um, uh, medications that they would be managed in exactly the same way as anybody else. So, but, but no, essentially it's to live happily and healthily. Ashling and Pippa, thank you for joining me today. And you can read the full article on living kidney donation on the bmj.com now.